we're going into a brand new series now. And uh, this is a series that God began to speak to me about last August. Uh, sorry, last July. Uh, on my vacation slash break, uh, as study break, where I combine the two together. But I do a great deal of praying and a great deal of planning. And, and uh, it's direction planning that the Holy Spirit gives me for the year. And one of the key things that he told me, uh, talked to me about last, last July was the issue of alignment in our church. And so in many areas throughout this year, we've been working at aligning, bringing alignment, alignment under Christ. And one of the places that he wants to bring some alignment is uh, within this series, and I've been waiting for the right timing, and there were certain things that had to happen here at the church before this series could be preached. And it's going to be on the gifts of the Spirit. We're going to do a whole series on it. Uh, not on the Holy Spirit, but on the gifts of the Spirit, the entire thing. We've never done a series on that. And uh, I, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's the, the right timing. The Holy Spirit has been moving in this. And I'm very excited about this. And uh, so we're going to start with a word of prayer. And then, uh, and then we'll go right into it. We're going to lay some foundation today before we actually get to some of the gifts. All right? Father, we want to just thank you. As, uh, as we worshiped just a few moments ago... Uh, I just sensed your spirit moving all across this uh, congregation. And you have done some remarkable things in the hearts of your people here. It's remarkable. And I want to give you all the praise, all the honor, and the glory for that. You are changing us, and we're becoming more like you. And as we do, your presence is becoming more and more manifest. And it's a joy to worship you, and for you to be here and present, and we can sense that you're here. People say it all the time. They can sense you here. And uh, so we rejoice in you. We love you. We praise you. We honor you. We worship you. And we say we bow our knees to you. You are our God. There is none other. And we, we rejoice in being able to follow you. Thank you for the things you've taught us. Thank you for the way you've freed us. Thank you for the way you've set us free. Thank you for the way you've saved us. Thank you for the way you're guiding and directing us. You've transformed us and we give you the praise for that. Now, Holy Spirit, we ask you to guide and direct in this particular series. I know that this is very dear to your heart right now. And we're doing it out of obedience and with great joy. We're going to speak to the best of our ability on, on what your word has to say about this matter of the gifts of the Spirit. May it bring great unity. May, may it bring great joy. Uh, may it bring great harmony and maturity and growth in our church. And we ask these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. And everybody agreed by saying, Amen. We're starting this new series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit in church. I want to begin by saying that you have grown spiritually over the last years, few years. Now, I don't, I, I don't remember the last time I said that, and I don't say that lightly. I don't say it often, but I felt like the Spirit wanted me to say that to you this morning. I really believe that, that you as a body have really grown spiritually in the last few years. Many of you are growing in the fear of the Lord in fasting and prayer, in being freed of strongholds in your lives, in dying to self, in hearing God's voice, uh, in your marriages and parenting. Yes, that's become a priority for many of you. In your giving, in your ministry, in your intimacy with Jesus, and yes, in your worship. Wasn't that amazing when, those, when the instruments stopped playing and everybody was singing all as well? 
Was that powerful? It was palpable. You could almost, you could just feel it. Everybody just singing. And it wasn't just singing. It was coming out of a heart. You've changed. God is transforming your hearts. But there's something missing or immature in our faith as a body that the Spirit of God wants to fill up in us, an area he wants to bring us into maturity, and that is our understanding and ministering in all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is not an optional issue. This is not something to be neglected. This is not something to be put on the shelf for another day. The Holy Spirit's confronting us with it now. And he wants us to uh, understand and minister in all the gifts of the Spirit, including those that may make us feel uncomfortable. Paul put it this way. He said, now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be what? I don't want you to be what? Ignorant. Turn to someone next to you and say, I don't want you to be ignorant anymore. <laughs> I just, saw, I just saw a wife slap a husband. <laughs> wow. Back to the marriage series. In this series, we'll answer many questions. We're going to answer questions such as, are there healers today and do they heal everyone? What are tongues? Are there modern-day prophets and apostles? What is distinguishing between spirits for? Can women operate in all leadership gifts? What is Ray, my gift and role here at this church? Some of you will be surprised by that. But before we get to all those interesting questions, we have to answer two foundational questions today. And they are, first, are all the spiritual gifts still here today? And the second question that we need to answer is, why does it matter? But we're going to start with the second question first. We're going to talk about the purpose of the spiritual gifts. There's a slide coming up right now that I introduced to the congregation about five and a half years ago, those of you that were here at that time. As pure white light shining through a prism refracts into the different colors of the spectrum, so God has revealed different aspects of his nature in three major revelations, and they are creation, Calvary, and Pentecost. Three major revelations that reflect the three persons of the Trinity. Christians and churches and denominations have tended to emphasize one aspect of Trinitarian truth over the others, thus dividing us into ecclesiastical, in, into ecclesiastical camps called liberal churches, charismatic churches, and evangelical churches. Now, I'll just make a side note here about the charismatic evangelicals. Uh, charismatics are evangelicals because they believe in the gospel of Christ. They believe in the gospel, the evangel. However, for the sake of what I'm talking here, I'm going to use a different name for the two groups. And I think you'll understand then what, what I mean by that. Liberal churches emphasize creation or natural order principles. And not only emphasize, often move towards worshiping those principles. They emphasize universal principles that God has revealed to us in creation, such as psychology and leadership and organization, governance, synergy, social justice, order, rules, methods, and institutions. Now I want to ask you a question. Are those good things? Yes, yes they are. Exactly right. They are good things. Do they come from God? 
Yes, they are natural laws that God gave. So the, the fact that they follow those laws is not bad. The, and we see that, he, and I want to make a, a point about the story of the Tower of Babel, because uh, in the story of the Tower of Babel, there, it was their organization, it appears from the story, that led to their downfall. They were building this edifice, and then God said he's going to confuse their languages so that they wouldn't be able to organize and, and that kind of thing. He wasn't doing it because organization and leadership and governance and rules, methods, and all those things are bad. He did it because... It led to something other than the worship of the true God. You see the problem? That was the issue. Then there's the charismatic churches. They emphasize, and in some case, worship experience. They experience the supernatural dimension of our faith, emphasizing prayer and worship and vitality and guidance of the Spirit and such. They tend to, and are those good things, by the way? Have we learned much from that? We've le- learned much from those two camps here at Southland. And we work in both of those streams. But they tend to neglect as a whole. I'm not saying every charismatic church or every charismatic Christian. I don't mean that. But I'm talking as a whole. These are some of the tendencies we see. They tend to neglect God's natural laws of order and organization. And they tend to disemphasize, de-emphasize the study of the word. Paul warned the Corinthian church of the excesses that arose from that. Little wonder today that some charismatics resort to, without question, strange behaviors such as crawling around and barking like a dog. And we see those kinds of excesses. And by the way, if, if you come from that kind of a side and, you, and you've been tolerant towards those kinds of, of things, you won't find Southland a comfortable place. Because we don't buy into those excesses. It comes from a group that are firmly rooted in one stream to the exclusion of the other two streams of truth. And we need all streams of truth. Now let's talk about the evangelical churches. They emphasize and to a point go to worshiping doctrine. They're all about doctrine. Teach me another doctrine. Study of the word. That's a good thing but not to the exclusion of some of the other principles. Most of you uh, come out of this stream, as do I. They stress the absolute claims of Jesus, which is a good thing, doctrine and theology, and invite people to find a personal relationship with him. There is little or no teaching about worship, prayer, deliverance, Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts that the charismatic stress. Very little. And that is a downfall. It's a huge downfall. And there's little or no teaching about social responsibility, governance, leadership, organization, systems uh, that the liberal churches would stress. Creation, Calvary, and Pentecost are all indispensable for a healthy, balanced, biblical faith. Amen? You need that for a healthy, balanced Christian, and you need it for a healthy, balanced church. We need all those principles working together. It's not the either-or tyranny. We need to buy into the both-and, as Jim Collins said in his leadership book. Rarely do we encounter three-dimensional Christians in churches, but that's exactly what we're called to. 
And five and a half years ago, when I first put that slide up, I located, I took a, a, I took a pointer and I pointed at that screen and I located us dead center of the evangelical stream and I said, that's precisely where we are. And I said, do you know where we need to get, where we need to go? That was a question I asked. I recall it very clearly. And I said, we need to move to the middle. Not to the other ones, other extremes. We need to receive what the other streams have and move to the middle. That is what God is calling us to do. And since we're, uh, since we're talking about spiritual gifts, uh, which the charismatics uh, certainly buy into, and we need to have that in a balanced theology and in a balanced Christian life, why is it that so many evangelicals, and that's where most of us come out of that stream, reject the miraculous spiritual gifts? And I was thinking about that, and I came to the conclusion that one of the key reasons is fear. It's fear. It's fear that keeps us from it, and fear of division. What's going to happen? We're, lo- we're going to lose control. In fact, I was, uh, I was at a meeting some years back with uh, some pastors uh, uh, of churches over 2,000. And we, we spent a couple of nights, a couple of days together discussing some issues. And uh, they asked me about, uh, uh, about some things we were doing in our church that they weren't doing in some of their churches, like personal ministry and, you know, the stuff that comes out of the encounter and that kind of stuff. And so I described some of that, and at the end of the meeting, I was sure they would never talk to me again. Uh, they weren't unkind, don't get me wrong. I, I, that's just the feeling that I had. But one of the pastors, one of the largest churches in Canada, came, took me aside privately and he said you know a few years ago I considered these things that you were talking about and he said I decided not to introduce them into our church because I was afraid I was afraid that it was going to bring division and chaos into our church so I decided not to now here's the interesting thing Paul himself dealt with this challenge of division and chaos right in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and you've got chapter 12 13 14 And in chapter 12 and 14, he's talking about the spiritual gifts and the problems that they were having at the church at Corinth. And in chapter 12, he talks about division. In fact, in the middle of 12 and 14, you have chapter chapter 13, which we call the what chapter? Love chapter, amen? And many of you hear that chapter talked about at, at weddings, amen? It is not a chapter about weddings, it's okay to talk about it at weddings, but that's not what Paul was talking about. He was talking about love in the middle of the use of gifts. Why? Because there was so much, there was so much division between the believers over this matter of spiritual gifts. Yet it's very interesting that though uh, he, he's trying to correct that imbalance and he's trying to bring unity and harmony into the church... In the middle of it, you would think that Paul would say, you know what, this is just a pain in the neck. Spiritual gifts are a pain in the neck. They just cause nothing but grief and trouble. Instead, he writes the love chapter, and not only that. In chapter 14, verse 1, and we're going to go to this verse at the end of the message again, he says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. He thought it was worth the risk of chaos and division to have spiritual gifts. Why? If it's going to cause that much problem 
in so many churches, and incidentally, it's amazing how this church has shifted to include things in the Spirit, and there hasn't been chaos and division. It's remarkable. But he, but he thought it was worth the risk to have spiritual gifts. Obviously, he thought spiritual gifts must be very, very important. Why, is, why so? Because I believe that Paul understood just how indispensable the spiritual gifts are to the body of Christ. He said, I know there's a risk involved in it, but I'm going to take it because I'd rather have, ha, have some of those problems with spiritual gifts than not to have those problems and not have spiritual gifts. Let me explain. Let's back up. Okay, so you can kind of hit the pause button. We're going to shift here a little bit. I want to explain uh, why this is so. Let me start by asking the question, why did Jesus come? In 1 John chapter 3, we have an answer. John, the Apostle John says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? Read that with me. Destroy the devil's work. Let's say it one more time. To devil's work. Now, how did he do it? He did it by the power of the Spirit. We know that. Acts chapter 10 says, And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the what? Help me. Holy Spirit and with? Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the? There it is again. For God was with him. So God was working through Jesus against the kingdom of darkness by empowering him by the Holy Spirit. True? Yes. What was the Spirit empowering in Jesus to do that? Let's take a look. Colossians 2 verse 9 says something very interesting. It says, For in him, that's in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. God is all in all. Would you agree with that, church? He's all in all. He doesn't need anything or anybody to complete him. Would you agree with that? I'm more complete because I'm married to Fran. I hope she's more complete because I'm married to her. Is that true? But, God, but Jesus doesn't need to be attached to anybody to be more complete. The, full God, the Godhead is fully in him bodily. Would you agree with that? He doesn't need us to be more complete. Now, Jesus was truly amazing. And I know you'd agree with that. He was an incredible teacher, wasn't he? People are still studying his teachings. You go to the Sermon on the Mount. It's just phenomenal. Incredible. Books are written about it. He was an amazing teacher. Would you think that if you had a choice between me and him, you're laughing, that you'd rather hear him teach? Amen. And I join you. I'd like to learn a few things from him. Amen. He was an incredible leader, wasn't he? He was unbelievable. What a pastor's heart he had. And wasn't he some evangelist? Oh, and, and, and Scripture says he was an incredible prophet and he prophesied things about individuals and about events to come. Oh, and was he an amazing servant? He was servant to all. Oh, my. Here's this great leader. He's God and he's a servant. He's washing feet at the same time. I mean, he's, he's everything. Was he an unbelievable miracle worker. Oh, could he do incredible miracles? Like feeding 5,000. 
you know, we think it's amazing when we feed 21 on Sunday and the whole family comes. He's feeding 5,000 at a time. And that was just the men. They, they listed the men because they eat the most. But then there were the women and the children besides. He was truly the, the, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt him. He was all of those, the best at all of those things. He was all of those things. That's amazing. Now, we already saw that when Jesus healed, it set people free from the kingdom of darkness. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it sure did. When Jesus taught, he had the ability to take them from where they were right to the heart of the kingdom matters. Remember the story of the Samaritan or the woman at the well in Samaria? He was passing through. It's unbelievable what he does. I mean, I try that sometimes, and it never works for me. Not nearly the way he does it. Uh, <clears throat> he says, um, I, I could use a drink of water. So she gets him a drink of water. And from that, he leads it into a conversation that takes her to, I am the living water and that's what you need. And you'll never thirst again. Is that amazing? That's unbelievable teaching. Uh, not only, I mean, and, 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 and then he says to her at one point, so... I mean, he's an amazing teacher there, and and he's evangelizing at the same time. I wish I could do it that way. And and then he says to her, he says, uh, you've you've got five husbands. And the one you're living with now isn't your husband. And her eyes just pop. I mean, that's unbelievable. Word of knowledge, prophetic. And he knows that. You know what she does in response to that? She said, excuse me. She runs back into the village and says, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. And they came in droves. And when they did, he led them to drink from the living water. Do you think he was leading a lot of people uh, and, uh, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light when he was doing these things, using, you know, his teaching, prophesying, uh, word of knowledge, evangelizing, all these things. Was he, was he leading people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? Yes or no? Was he pushing back the powers of darkness when he was using the fullness of the God ahead that dwelt in him bodily, uh, him bodily? Was he pushing back the powers of darkness when he was doing that? Amazingly so. There was another time he, he performs miracle, like the 5,000. And uh, <clears throat> they've just eaten, and he turns around and he says, time for a devotional. And you know what he teaches on? I am the bread of life. Unbelievable. <laughs> you guys were hungry, and you're going to be hungry tomorrow again, but I want to tell you something, that if you eat from me, you'll never be hungry again. I'm going to satisfy you on the inside in a way that you've never been satisfied. Unreal. He was so good at it. It didn't matter what aspect of the Godhead he was using. He was supreme. He was the best. It was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And whatever he did, it just moved, transferred more people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And it pushed back the powers of darkness. And that's exactly what it said. What John meant when he said... <clears throat> When he said that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's how he did it. It's amazing. It's absolutely incredible. Now, do you know anyone who, who is amazing in all of these areas like Jesus was? Do you know anybody? Uh, who's good at 
I mean, really good at every single one of these areas. Do you know anybody like that? I don't either. That's because the fullness of the Godhead doesn't dwell in each one of us fully in our bodily form. It, it doesn't. And, uh, and, and despite this, despite this, now, I, now I've set things up a little bit for you. Having said all this about Jesus, now he makes the most incredible statement. If you look at it in light of what we just talked about, in John chapter 14, you'll just shake your head. And I'll let you do it as soon as I read it. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. Uh, Are you kidding? The fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily, and he's he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's perfect, and he's sinless, and he does it to the best. There is nobody that's his equal, and you're telling me, he says, you will do the things that I'm doing? You've got to be kidding me. He will do even greater things than these. Come on. He was joking with us, right? He was pulling our leg. That's what Jesus was up to. He was pulling our legs. No, he wasn't. And he says, because I'm going to the Father. In fact, Jesus said at one point, remember what he said to his disciples? It is necessary for me to go to the Father. In fact, it's better for you that I go away than that I stay. How can that be so? And how is it possible? Well, Jesus' body was limited to one place at a time. We said the fullness of the Godhead was in Jesus bodily, but the problem with it was Jesus' body was in one place at one time. Amen? And because it was in one place at one time, wherever it touched, it pushed back the powers of darkness, but it couldn't be everywhere at one time. Would you agree with that? It couldn't be everywhere. That's why Jesus said, and you may have read this in in, in the scriptures, it says... Jesus said, I came only to the lost house of what? Israel. Come on, why not the other? I mean, Israel's just a little sliver when you look on the map. If you have a globe, you can't even find Israel on a globe. You need a big map to find it. That's all he came to. In fact, when the Phoenician woman came and she wanted something from him, he said, sorry, I just came to, for, for the lost house of Israel. And then, of course, because she was really clever and she did the dog trick, you know, she said, even dogs get crumbs from the table. And he chuckled at that. I can just see him chuckling and say, okay, okay, you get something too. But really, I only came to the lost house of Israel. And you're not one of them. Why? Because he was in a bodily form and could only be at one place. So the fullness of the Godhead, yes, but only in one place. So when Jesus says, I've got I've to go and it's better that I go, why was it better? Because he left behind another kind of body. He left behind a body called the what? The church. And the church was going to be where? Everywhere. Oh my. That's amazing. He left behind a bigger body. And he was excited about that. And then the Spirit comes and takes the fullness of the Godhead, those aspects of it, and distributes them as he will to millions of people. Millions of people. I I mean, the... 
all. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another miraculous powers. Does that sound like Jesus? Healing. Did Jesus heal? Yeah, sure he did. Wisdom. Was he wise? Did Jesus grow in wisdom before man and God? Is that what the scriptures say? Yes. A message of knowledge. Was that like Jesus? Help me. Go, go ahead and say yes. Yeah, you're preaching with me. You preached to me, I preached to you. And then I'll share my salary with you. <laughs> you wish, eh? <clears throat> Miraculous powers. Did Jesus do that? How about prophecy? Did Jesus do that? Could he distinguish between spirits? Oh yeah, he could do all these kinds of things. And now he gives them to others. Now, these aspects of the fullness of God, these gifts have two purposes. As gifts, they are there to build up the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 12. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that what? Build up the church. Say that together. Build up the church. That's one of the purposes that the gifts are for. Now, I used to moan about, moan and groan about people in a church. This is the second church I've pastored. This one far more than the other one. But I, I used to see people sitting in pews or in chairs. And I said, what is the matter with those people? They've been here X number of years. They just don't get off their duff and they don't move. And I, it bugged me. Like, why don't they get moving? And then one day the Holy Spirit showed me that the reason some of them, or many of them, weren't active, and not everybody, but some of them, it's just a choice, was because they were in bondages that they couldn't get out of. And I said, well, that's a fine how do you do. Give me good ones then. (laughs) And send the bondaged ones somewhere else. (laughs) I, God and I have some interesting conversations. Well, God said, you know what, Ray? It's time that you learn how to help them. And I remember in 2001 how I began to experiment in secret uh, with some different kinds of gifts and how I started to learn about inner healing. And I, and I learned how you could hear God's voice and he'd speak into a situation. That's a prophetic word and, and about deliverance and discerning spirits and stuff like that. I'm not saying I'm a great giant and all this. But I was, I was learning experimenting. And guess what? Before I used to counsel them and nothing would happen. They just kept sitting there. And then people started getting set free. Well, we turned it into an entire uh, retreat. And then from there grew, uh, called the Encounter God Retreat, and then from there we just grew that thing into what we call personal ministry, and we've continued to grow since 2005 in these things. And you know what we discovered? That you could use these gifts to set people in the body free. And suddenly people who had just been sitting there started moving because they weren't shackled to the chairs anymore with their bondages. Do you see the importance of that? Build up the church. Uh, the, the other day, I got two emails, one in the evening and one in the morning, the next morning, and from two different people, and both of them wrote this. Just got a word from the Lord for you today and thought it might be meaningful. If it doesn't mean anything, just get rid of it. That's how they typically, typically do it. In both cases, I stopped and I wept. It's exactly what I needed. It was a prophetic word. 
It edified me. It built me up. It made me say, oh God, thank you. I needed that right now. The gifts are given to build up the church so that the church can be the Jesus body. The fullness of the Godhead into the world. Amen? That's one of the reasons it's given. These are gifts to the body. You're going to see it coming up on on the screens here. Gifts to the body. But when speaking of them in relation to the powers of darkness, Paul refers to them as weapons against the power of darkness. They're the same thing. Let's say that together. They are gifts to the body of Christ. Let's say that one more. Here we go again. They are gifts to the body of Christ, and they are weapons against the power of darkness. Wow. Second Corinthians uh, describes it from that perspective. It says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. No, they come from the Godhead. Amen? A- amen, church? I used to try to do them with the weapons of the world. I tried to counsel them and just say, smarten up, pull up your bootstraps. And the more I told people to pull up their bootstraps and start acting right, the more discouraged they got. And then I tried aspects of the Godhead, spiritual gifts, which were weapons against the enemy because it, pushed, it, it moved them from the kingdom of darkness into light. It pushed back the, 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 the powers of darkness. The more I did that, Uh, Amazing. Why are they called weapons in relation to the enemy? Because they're effective and take more territory. People, that is, from him. Now, all these gifts or weapons would no longer reside in one person, in one locale, but be distributed by the Spirit into hundreds of millions of people all over the world. Now, there would be millions of servants and teachers and prophets and intercessors and apostles and evangelists and administrators and healers, etc., 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 all over the world. It was more necessary for Jesus to leave than for him to stay. And that is not heresy. He said that. And it's for this reason. No wonder Jesus said they would do much greater things than he did, greater in quantity. Amen? Amen, church? Amen. Amen. But you see, that means that you and I need to operate in the same Aspects of the Godhead that dwelt in Jesus bodily, we need to operate in those same things. Amen? Otherwise, it would have been better that Jesus didn't go. He may as well have stayed. At least we got something. Amen? That's what he's saying. Together as the great body of Christ, we can push back the powers of darkness everywhere. No wonder Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Just like Jesus destroyed the devil's works, so the church now does it too. All right, second question. Are all the gifts here today? As we saw, the evangelical wing of the church has for the most part rejected many things having to do with the Spirit, such as the miraculous or the power gifts of the Spirit, such as healing and miracles, prophecy and tongues. They have formed a doctrine called cessationism, which says that the gifts ceased after the passing of the first century early church, uh, when the apostles died. Now, is it true that the miraculous gifts ceased centuries ago that's a question we want to answer before we can go and talk about gifts okay we'll respond to three main arguments for the doctrine of cessationism and this is the doctrine that i have been born and bred in and this is the one that i learned and this is the one that i used to teach people years ago all right and i'm telling you i don't believe it anymore 
Okay? I've completely changed my mind. I now see things more clearly and not so dimly. Amen? <laughs> are you with me on that? Argument number one. So I know these arguments quite well. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 to 10, teaches that the miraculous gifts passed away with the completion of the New Testament. So they, will, they will cease, is argument number one. They take it from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 to 10. Now, I, I know I'm doing a little, we're doing a little bit of a classroom thing here right this minute. But we have to do this in order to get to the rest of the series. Is that okay? You, you, you have to understand clearly, and even if you don't memorize it all, but if you know in your heart that this is right, then you won't have a problem with the rest of the series. But if you don't, if you're doubting the whole time, then you're going to have difficulty with, every, with everything that's coming. Trust me. First Corinthians 13. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will what, does it say? Oh, it sounds like they're going to cease. Amen. Where there are tongues, they will be what? Where there is knowledge, it will? For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, that's a key phrase, the imperfect disappears. It does say that the miraculous gifts such as tongues and prophecies will cease, but the, and the question is, when? And it says in verse 10, when perfection comes. What is Paul referring to? And there's two ways that it's been interpreted. Cessationists, those who believe that the miraculous gifts have ceased after the first century, would say that perfection refers to the completed canon of Scripture. They hold that the first century church needed these miraculous gifts because the Bible wasn't completed, and when God completed the canon, these gifts were no longer needed, so they passed away. And what were they needed for? To authenticate what the apostles were saying. Because they could do miracles, then people could believe their message. That was the point. That's what the argument is saying. But if you look further... And at the context of what we're reading here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it actually tells us what it's referring to. I mean, it's very nice to come up with this idea, except for that's not actually what the context says. The context tells us what perfect, when perfection comes, what that's referring to. And, what it's, and we'll see it in two ways. Let's take a look at verse 12, the first part. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see what? Face to face. Perfection comes when we see someone face to face. Who are we looking forward to seeing face to face? Jesus. Amen. Do we see him now face to face? Do we see him in his fullness now? Do we see him in his glory? How many of you yearn to see him? Amen. You want to see him. And the promise of the word is that we will see him face to face. And when we do, we don't need those miraculous gifts anymore. Amen? We're not going to need healing gifts when we see Jesus. Do you believe that? Hallelujah. I'm tired of operations. And I don't, I've never had one on me. <laughs> My wife has. But I'm tired of going to the hospital all the time. We're not going to need some of this stuff then. Uh, how, here's the second part. second part of verse 12. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. I want to ask you a question. Now that we have the completed canon of Scripture, all Scripture is here, we can't add to it or subtract from it. Now that it's all here, do you understand everything in your life now that you have this? We were just singing, the last song that we sang where you really sang out was, All is well. I know that some of you I was, were singing through tears. Some of you have suffered 
Unbelievably. And you're going, why God? I don't understand. You're in Job's position. He hasn't shown you everything about it. You don't know fully, and yet you have the scriptures. Amen? But he hasn't revealed everything, but one day he will. Amen? Aren't you glad that one day he's going to connect the dots and show you there was purpose and meaning in everything that's happening to you? And that all is well in your soul? That's still coming. So, uh, now, so we realize that that's not what it's saying about those miraculous gifts. Obviously, it's talking about the second coming of Christ. Argument number two. The miraculous gifts ceased with the death of the last apostle. Now, cessationists, those who say that uh, the, the miraculous gifts ceased, use scripture passages such as the following to support their claim. Second Corinthians 12, Paul said, The things that mark an apostle, signs and wonders and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. Now, did apostles, did the apostles, the original 12, with Paul, <clears throat> because he replaced Judas, eh, sort of, like, but anyway, did they do signs and wonders and miraculous works? Yes or no? Absolutely, they did. It is true, they served a unique uh, foundational role in the redemptive history. The problem is with the logic that is taking place. And here's the logic. The apostles did many miraculous works. That's the premise. The apostles died, therefore there are no more miraculous works. Now, that's not very good logic. Because some, you know what else the apostles did? They planted churches. So the apostles planted churches, the apostles died, therefore no one can plant churches. In fact, we could say the apostles ate... The apostles died, therefore no one can eat anymore. <laughs> Do you see how logical that kind of reasoning is? Besides that, the scriptures tell us, indicate that, uh, actually indicate that others could perform wonder-working powers. There was this unknown, and I could list many, but I'm just going to show you two instances. There was an unman, unknown, <laughs> an unman. <laughs> there was an unknown man who cast out demons. Teacher, the apostle uh, John said, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. So it wasn't just the apostles, it was an unknown. Then there was a time of the 72, Jesus sent them out, not only to preach but to heal the sick. After this it says, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go, and he told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. What does verse 9 say? You've got to be kidding. These are 72 no-name brands. They could have come from Southland. Because that's all we are, amen? We're just a bunch of no-name brands. <laughs> Stuck on the edge of the city. Amen? That's all we are. They were no-name brands. You have no idea what their name is. And not only did Jesus say, go preach the gospel, he said, what? Heal the sick. It wasn't just the apostles. Argument number three. So that one's out the window. Oh, this is painful for me. These were some of my favorite arguments. Allowing the miraculous gifts such as prophecy undermines the sufficiency of Scripture. This argument is concerned with protecting the scriptures as the final and authoritative revelation of God's inerrant word. Unfortunately, they've defined the word revelation, which comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, too narrowly, assuming it always refers to scriptural revelation. 
But the word revelation can refer to other kinds of revelation as well, not just scriptural revelation. For example, it can, it can refer to more understanding. It says in Ephesians 1, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and what? And what? Revelation. So that you may know him better, more understanding him, more knowledge of him. Uh, here's a second way, for encouragement and edification. It says in 1 Corinthians 14, what then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction. Uh, what? revelation, a tongue or interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Paul didn't mean that the church people were speaking with scriptural authority, like Old Testament prophets kind of writing scripture. He's just saying, God gave you a word today, like I said before. You know, some of you had your devotions this morning. I hope you all did. And you had time with the Lord. And he spoke to you about something. And maybe it was for someone in your family or for a friend or whatever. Or you just shared it with them and you say, God really spoke to me through this. That's a revelation. But it's not saying that scriptural revelation. And then the third one for guidance and direction, Galatians 2. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus also. I went in response to a what? Revelation. What's he talking about? Guidance and direction. Aren't you glad God's Spirit gives you guidance and direction for your life? Amen. Amen. He gives you revelation for your life. Amen? And that's not scriptural revelation. That's just revelation to guide you. I'm sure glad he guides me. And you should be thankful that he guides me too. Or you'd be in a mess. Amen? You'd be in a real pickle. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Jesus, that you're guiding him. He sure needs it. All right, let's see. Do I have time? Not really, but I'm going to anyway. I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell you a little story. My upbringing and seminary training were firmly rooted in the evangelical stream. I was a cessationist, as I mentioned, one who believes the miraculous gifts ceased when the last apostles died. And at age 27, <clears throat> I had already, uh, le- God had already called me into vocational ministry. I'd left my career. I was in an evangelical stream Bible college. And it was midnight, and I was, uh, my wife was fast asleep next to me, and I was sitting up and reading the autobiography of George Miller, the great 19th century man of faith. And I was really captured by this man. And uh, as I was reading, he tells the story of how he was, he was going to start the orphanage. This book, by the way, has done more to change the trajectory of my life and from that, this church, than any other book other than the Bible. And I was, reading, uh, I was reading the autobiography and all, and so he tells about how he's going to start this orphanage. And, and he had the building and all, and the night before, he realizes that he doesn't have uh, things like bedding and clothing and food for the orphans that are coming. He's a man. Amen? <laughs> he's got a building. What else would you need? <laughs> right? He obviously wasn't married. Amen? <laughs> And suddenly he's in a panic, and he starts to pray, and he's reading the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit speaks to him, begins to speak to him, and he's in a panic. What am I going to do? These orphans are coming. I have no way to text. I have no, I have no cell phones. There's nothing. It's just horse and buggies, you know, carriages and that kind of stuff. And he doesn't know what to do, and he's reading in the scriptures, and he comes across Psalm 81 in his reading, and I've underlined this in my old King James Bible from year, many years ago. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And then this part. 
open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. And he testifies in his autobiography, he says that when he read that, the Spirit of God took those words and just, just quickened his heart. And he knew the Spirit of God was speaking to him in that instant about his situation, though that's not what Paul uh, or David was writing about. And so he opened his mouth and he began to list for God all the things that he needed for tomorrow morning. And, and the next morning came and the carriages started to roll up before the building and they began to unload the very things that he had prayed about the night before and God had promised. One thing after another. The food and the bedding, the clothing and the, pot, the pots and the dishes and all these kinds of things began to be unloaded. Well, I was reading this and when I read this, the Holy Spirit of God quickened my heart. And I sat up in bed at 27 years old, and I began to weep profusely. I'm not exaggerating. My wife was asleep. I'm glad, or I would have been embarrassed and ashamed. I wasn't sad. I couldn't believe what had just been revealed to me. Because I had learned, and I had been taught, that these miraculous gifts and God speaking and all these kinds of things had ceased in the first century, yet this guy was out of the 19th century. So I knew that at least in the 19th century, God was still doing these things. And I thought, if he was doing it in the 19th, I extrapolated, and I thought, maybe he's doing it in the 20th century as well. I woke my, uh, the next morning when I woke, and uh, I told my wife, Fran, about this uh, experience that I'd had and what had happened, and I said, I, I think God is still doing the same things. And uh, right then, we needed to purchase a, a business, uh, a little business because we had, I'd been laid off. I was going to Bible college and I was working at this place called McGee Industries, but the interest rates were very high and all the industries were laying people off, thousands and thousands across southern Ontario. And so I was laid off as well. And, uh, <clears throat> and the only opportunity I had was from a German named Jürgen Lehne who said, I'll sell you my little driving school business, which was just goodwill, um, a defensive driving academy, for $5,000, which seemed very much at the time. Now, I didn't have a nickel to my name anymore because we were in school and with kids and everything else. And, um, and, but I had no money. But I sensed that God wanted me to buy this thing. And so I thought, I'm going to try what this, I'm going to try what this, this uh, George Miller did. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to see if God speaks to me about something important and something that I, is an emergency for me, just like he did George Miller. I want to see if he still operates in the 20th century like he did in the 1st century. And so I, uh, I told Fran about that, and I got up real early the next morning, and I took out a little, uh, a little spiral notebook, uh, light green. I know exactly how it looks. And I flipped it over, and I took, a, I took a pen, and I wrote a prayer to God in it. And I did R, kind of like I do today. And I said, Dear God, and, and I sensed God's presence there as I sat in the chair in St. Jacob's near Kitchen Waterloo. And I thought, something momentous may happen here. Either it works or it doesn't work. Maybe he doesn't work like this anymore. I'm going to try it. And I said, dear God, and I told him what I wanted. And then I said, but I'm so afraid that I'm going to read something into the word and that I'm going to get all messed up and I'm going to take some direction. And so I, I, made, this, I made this request. I said, dear God, Please make it plain. And then I went, amen. Then I, I thought, now what do I do? Well, I thought, I'll read where I left off. And I was in the Gospel of John, and I was in the book of Psalms. 
And so I was reading in the Gospel of John, and I hadn't read very far, and it was in the King James, and I, re- I came to a place where it said, where Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, and it says, I will show you plainly of the Father. And when I read that word plainly, honestly, it's like a jolt came out straight out of heaven and just hit me so hard. And I just began to weep and weep. I cried. I sensed his presence all around. And I knew he was answering my one request, which was, please show me plainly. And, and I knew he was going to do it. After that, I said, well, now, how am I going to get the money? I don't have any money. And my parents don't have any money. And my in-laws don't have. I, I, where am I going to go? <clears throat> no bank's going to talk to me at this point. And... Uh, And so I'm reading in Psalm 37, and I'm just listening, and I sense he's there. And I come to one verse, and it says, the righteous lend. And then it says some things about it, and right there again, the Holy Spirit squeezes me. I read some more verses, and it says, the righteous give, in another few verses. And I'm thinking, well, I like the last one better than the first one. (laughs) Amen? But both of them, he seemed to squeeze my heart, and I sensed him saying it was both. So Fran woke up, and she said, well, did you meet with God? And I said, I did. He's still talking today. And and I told her all about it, and I told her about the plainly and everything. But I said, I'm confused. He he says, somebody who's saved is going to actually either lend me money or give me money. I just don't know which one it's going to be. And right about then, her uh, brother was getting married here in Steinbeck, and the whole family got some money together and flew our whole family back. <clears throat> and it was on a Saturday morning, I believe 11 o'clock. And I was in, uh, we were staying in my in-law's basement, and I had got dressed that morning for the wedding. I was wearing my suit, and I was sitting having my devotions downstairs. And my father-in-law walks down the stairs, and he's all dressed for the wedding too. And it's about 8 o'clock, and he says to me, do you have time to go to the bank right now? And I said, Go to the bank for what? The credit union. I said, for what? He said, the $5,000 that you need for the business. I said, Dad, you don't have that. No. But he said, in the middle of the night, he said, you know how we've been praying for you for the last few weeks? In the middle of the night, God woke me up and gave me a name and said, phone that person in Winnipeg and tell them about Ray and Fran and what they're doing. And so he had phoned this person, and he had just started a couple of sentences, and this person said, if they need money, I don't care what they need it for, they can just go to the Steinbeck Credit Union, I'll co-sign the loan. And so I said, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, sure, I'll go. So we went, got the $5,000, and went back to Kitchen Waterloo, start, and bought that little business, and started it. Three months later, we get a statement. So we get a statement every month, and we weren't paying very big payments on that. This is going to take us years to pay off $5,000. And uh, three months into it, we get a statement, and the statement says, balance, zero. I'm looking at it, I said, oh boy, bank made a mistake. Gave it to Fran and said, here, please, would you, honey, would you please take care of this? She called Simon Credit Union. And the credit union said, uh, no, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's all paid. We had them check it twice. So finally we hung up the phone and I looked at her and she looked at me and I said, well, surely that person from Winnipeg didn't pay that off. They never said anything. So I wrote a letter to this person. That's what we did in those days. You can see it at the Mennonite Village Museum. But anyway, I wrote a letter. <clears throat> I wrote a letter, and I, it felt very awkward because I'm thinking, like, did, did this person do this? And I wrote a letter and asked, did you by any chance 
pay off that loan. And a week later, I get this letter back and says, it was two lines in the first paragraph, and it said, yes, I did, please don't tell anybody. And then there was a paragraph like this, just telling about the person's life. And right then, the Holy Spirit just whiffed. I mean, it just came out of nowhere. It hit me hard. The righteous lends, and the righteous gives. In this particular case, that's not how it always happens. But in this case, and God showed me. That was the beginning of a trajectory that absolutely transformed and changed my life. And that is what we've been introducing here through listening prayer, and the encounters, the empowers, the spirit. All these things, when we brought in the Holy Spirit in 2004 and all these things that have been happening, that's how it happens. And God is calling this church to a deeper walk with Him in which the fullness of the Godhead dwells in His body. Amen? We need His gifts, church. And we need not be ashamed of them. We need to learn how to operate them. I want to leave you with this one final verse. 1 Corinthians 14.1, the one that I alluded to earlier. Follow the way of love and what does it say then? Eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Let's pray. Just put out your hands, would you? going to make a prayer of commitment right now to God about this matter of spiritual gifts as we start into the series. Dear God, oh God, we confess before you that we have neglected these spiritual gifts. We thought they were dispensable. We thought they were optional. These matters of the fullness of the Godhead that dwelt in Jesus that have now been distributed used to dispel the powers of darkness. We thought they were optional. In fact, we thought some of them were weird. We thought some of them were strange. Some of them were downright despicable. We didn't like them. And we confess that as a sin before you because you are our Heavenly Father. And you know what's best for us. You don't give useless gifts. You only give good gifts, James said. All good gifts come from the Father of light. And we acknowledge that before you this morning. We say, God, give us a desire for these gifts so that we'll be more like you, more like Jesus that will walk in, his, in the same footsteps, footsteps, that will be able to free many, move them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and that we can push back the powers of darkness that are overwhelming our country. Oh God, give us a desire for this, an earnest desire. Change our hearts in this matter and teach us we tell you that we'll have humble hearts and we'll receive it from you. We'll obey and we'll follow you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.